As we come to this final section of the Gospel of Matthew, everything, everything in this chapter, and some of the material immediately following are all a prelude to the death of Jesus Christ. So all of this now is just really focusing on the preparation of Jesus' going to the cross. And this section is full of ironies. Um, and those are, there's two words that I don't usually use. One of them is ironic, and the other one is what? No, John, yeah. not John, but the other one. There's three words now. No. The other word you hate, literally. You literally hate it. <laughs> so, she hates genre, she hates literally, and she hates ironic. So those are three words. She literally hates them. I mean, she really... And it's ironic that she literally hates. You know, because you'd think it would fit into her genre. <laughs> <laughs> but throughout Matthew we've seen different ironies um, and they intensify especially when we get here to the account of the final persecution and death of Jesus Christ so looking at Matthew he experienced hunger but he fed others he grew weary and yet he gave rest to others. He was the king and messiah and yet he pays tribute to others. He was called the devil by the Pharisees but cast out demons by the power of God. He dies the death of a sinner but he died to save us from our sins. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver but he gave his life as a ransom for many. He would turn stones he wouldn't turn stones to bread for himself but he gave his body to bread for his people. And nowhere is this kind of irony, which we have been seeing throughout the Gospel of Matthew, more apparent than when we get here in this final suffering and death, in this whole section of Matthew 26, 27, and 28. But here in this passage, this morning, Christ's enemies believed that they were finally getting rid of him. But it turns out in their plan to destroy him, that was the very plan of God for the salvation of all of those who trust in him. And you see that first in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. And you just see God's sovereignty in all of this. Highlighted by the fact that the council was planning to take Jesus secretly. They're secretly planning to take Jesus. And they said, will never be able to pull this off at the festival. In verses 1 through 1 and 2. We're not going to be able to pull this off at the festival. And Jesus, even while they're saying those things, is meeting with his disciples saying, by the way, in two days, I'm going to be taken. So the leaders are sitting there going, we can't do it now, but we're going to get them. And Jesus says, you don't think you can do it now, but you will be doing it now. So you just see the sovereignty of Christ, even in that, and that he gives his life willingly for us. Um, and then you come to verses 6 through 13. 
And that story is recorded in all four Gospels. And for Matthew, the power of the story is in the, in the life of Jesus is highlighted by the fact that it is bracketed on one side by the decision of the chief priest to kill him. So you see this opening in Matthew chapter 26 of the chief priest trying to plan to kill Jesus, to capture him, destroy him. After this story, you have Judas plotting to go to the chief priest also. So in between these two scenarios is this story. Um, so you have the side with G Judas, who in the end sells out Jesus for a few pieces of silver, never realizing that all along he was with the person who possesses the very treasure of heaven. So a few pieces of silver versus the very treasures of heaven. And so he sells out Jesus. And that's the tragic irony in this story. People are being offered something priceless, yet they cannot take hold of it simply because their hands are too occupied clutching at something that will ultimately be worthless. And everyone clutches something. And, you know, we have to decide whether that which we are clutching is priceless because it's of God or worthless because of its humanity. And so you have to ask yourself, what do I clutch to on a daily basis when I'm in a crisis or when something's going on? So yet they're in the center of these two decisions to betray God and in so doing so forfeit their own future is a picture of someone who makes the right choice. A picture of someone who demonstrates what it means to serve the Lord with all of one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, as Joe, as Joe mentioned. As such, the story may just have something important to say to each of us. Uh, so let's hear the story. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Jesus has gone to Bethany many times. It's a popular place for him to go. It's the place where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. He had gone there for, before he'd go to Jerusalem. He'd be there with the family. But on this particular night, he's not with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in their house. Jesus was at the guest of, of, a, of Simon the leper. And we don't know much about this Simon. And so we don't know whether he still had leprosy, whether he had been healed by Jesus, we don't know. All we know is he's defined as Simon the leper. Um, and if it is somebody that was healed by Jesus, and now he's throwing a banquet for Jesus, it just proves the fact that grace begets grace. That those who give the most are usually the ones who acknowledge that they have received the most. When you know how much you've been forgiven, it becomes easier to forgive others. When you realize how much God has given you, it's easier to give to others. Um, and so that's what this story could remind us of. Perhaps Simon still had leprosy. And if he does, this would be a remarkable sort of dinner. Um, in view of the fear of lepers, 
that was held by the people. And so you never socialized with a leper, and you definitely would not be sitting down and having a meal with them. But again, if this is the truth, then we are reminded that God's grace and desire to love and encourage people always, almost always, goes where human prejudice and bias rarely go. Because, in fact, our fear may be a reliable pointer of where God may be sending us. I wouldn't really want to go, you know, I feel uncomfortable with that. I feel uncomfortable with those people. I feel uncomfortable, you know, going to Wayside and ministering to some of the guys at Wayside. I feel uncomfortable going to Hesed House and dealing with homeless people. I feel uncomfortable going and dealing with the homeless or the sick. I don't feel comfortable volunteering with that. And so sometimes our fear may be actually the pointer that God is leading us to, to minister to people. Um, because it was Jesus that said, whatever you did for me, to throw in the least of these, you did for me. And it's easy to not do for the least of these and do for those which we feel comfortable with. In any event, as Jesus sat, a stunning thing occurred. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at a table. In his version of the story, John, in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, identifies her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So therefore, not to be confused with Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of Jesus. And the Bible says that this woman brought with her an alabaster jar. An alabaster is a translucent, whitish, fine-grained um, variety of gypsum or calcite that would be found in stalactites. And they would make jars out of it. They would make vases out of it. They would make statues out of it. And so, and it was very expensive. So Mary comes to Jesus, not only within a, this expensive ointment, but in this jar, and she breaks it and pours the ointment, the perfume, over Jesus. And again, in telling the story, John adds to this by saying he poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Whatever the precise details, try to imagine how dramatic and fragrant scene this was. Um, and not surprisingly, there was a fairly dramatic response from the other dinner guests. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Again, Matthew just tells us that they were indignant. John always sort of gives us a little bit more detail. And he informs us that not were they just indignant, but the leader of this group was Judas. He's the one who sort of got him going. You know, he sort of stirred the pot. And he didn't do it because he was concerned about the poor. He wasn't concerned about the homeless. He wasn't concerned about that. He was concerned because he was the keeper of the treasury. 
And in John, we also find out that he was sort of an embezzler. And so the more money I have in here, the more money I can put into my pocket. And so he gets them all stirred up. Um, and so John, so Judas was motivated far less by concern for the poor than for his own needs. In the very next passage, both Matthew and Mark tells us that this incident was the last straw for Judas. Both of them say, whether motivated by greed or they thought Jesus was crazy, Judas subsequently goes to the chief priest to join their efforts to eliminate Jesus. So just an amazing bracket here of where this story is. But if we take Matthew's account at face value, it's easy sort of to emphasize with the concern of the disciples. You know, really? You're going to give, spend all this money just anointing Jesus? That seems somewhat like a waste. I mean, the equivalent would be a year's salary. So try to imagine your your salary, you buy some perfume, and then you just pour it out. You know. And they're saying, wait a second. If I gave my your salary, think of how many people I could feed. Think of how many people, how I could help the homeless. Think of all the people it would help. So you can see where they might be a little bit indignant about that. Because a denarii was an average work day's wage for a worker, and you have 300 denarii that this perfume was worth. Um, furthermore, it was a long-standing Jewish tradition to give money to the poor on the eve of Passover. So you just gave all this potential money anointing Jesus with this perfume versus giving it to the poor. Um, but a more telling question is, in those verses, why this waste? Why this waste? And the reality is, you'll never waste anything on Christ. You can waste your time. How many have ever said, that, that was a waste of time? You went to a certain movie, you walked out of the movie, and said, that was a waste of time. You had a certain conversation with somebody and you walked out and said, that was a waste of time. You've been counseling somebody and you walk out and you go, that was a waste of time. You were at a business meeting. Waste of time. I mean, I, I went, I wasted so much time. Oh, I better not say that. <laughs> Let me put it another way. My gifting was not meeting. And so when I was at Christ Church of Oldbrook, it became a point where I was at meetings almost 50% of the time of the day. And I would walk out of those meetings, I go, this seems like a waste of time. Now, it may not have been, but because of my giftings, positive or negative, to me it was a waste of time. Um, but we've, how many times have we said those things? That... The waste of your strength, waste of your time, waste of your life. But anything that is done for Jesus is never a waste. And Mary understood that better than anybody else in that room. That it wasn't a waste. And it's a beautiful thing to see her pour out her heart 
and her life as she pours out this vial of perfume. No gift is too great in such a response to that kind of love. The divine love, which not only gives everything, but is content to be one-sided. And that's the part of God's love that sometimes we forget. We can forget who Jesus is, but he never forgets who we are. He can show his love for us all the time, even if it's never given back. Because it said he, he loved everyone, even those who rejected him. And that love never stops. And Mary got that. And out of response to that, she says, I'm going to give my all. See, you can't outgive God's love. So the disciples are shocked. God is pleased. Jesus is pleased. And you see that in Jesus' response. But before we get to Jesus' response, there was a couple of things that went through my head when I started thinking about the disciples because there's a tendency for us to be able to quickly judge others and the way they live out their faith. Or somebody may give some money or not give some money and we say, well, you know, how come they're not doing this? How come they're not doing that? And how quickly it is to judge, just as the disciples did. And then I, it's also easy for, for me to look at the disciples and say, why didn't you guys get it? You know, you've been with Jesus day in and day out for all these years. Mary's had a couple of experiences with him, but she understands his love and you guys still don't get it. Um, and, but yet at the same time, they did get one aspect of it. Jesus was always talking about taking care of the poor. He was always taking about, talking about taking care of others, of feeding the homeless, sorry, feeding, the, feeding people and taking care of the poor and healing the sick. And so when the disciples say, well, how come you're not doing this? It's clear that they, they understood Jesus' teaching. And they probably, they understood far better than I do. Because a lot of times, my first response isn't how I take care of the least of these. You know, it moves into another direction. So they got it. But at the same time, they didn't get the, the depth of what that really meant. Because if they really understood Jesus' love and Jesus' grace and all that Jesus had done for them, they wouldn't have been asking those questions. They would have said, you know what, Jesus is going to take care of the hungry. Jesus is going to take care of the poor. We have this experience of being with Jesus now. And so let's enjoy every moment we have because he's not going to be with us for long. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Those are rich words. You know, she has done a beautiful thing for me. She is already preparing me for burial. So how do you explain this response of Jesus? Why doesn't Jesus see things the way the disciples do? Why does he not only see nothing wrong with what Mary did, but apparently he saw something that was wonderfully right. 
And why does he commend her instead of condemning her? And what does that response imply about the way in which we should respond to Jesus? And just a few thoughts. He commended her first because she placed service to her master above all other concerns. Serving Jesus was the first and foremost concern. Everything else was secondary. And she didn't care what it looked like. Um, and so the key vocational question must not be, how do I serve the poor, but how do I serve Christ? Because if we're really asking the question, how do I serve Christ, he will lead us to the poor. He will lead us to the people that we need to be met to. And when you're serving, saying, how do I serve Christ, you're not primarily concerned about success or eradicating all poverty. You're instead concerned about being faithful. And it's amazing how many people stop volunteering or serving because they don't see success. Instead of saying, it doesn't matter. I'm, by myself, I'm not going to eradicate poverty. I'm not going to eradicate homelessness. I'm not going to eradicate, you know, hunger. But I can be faithful to Christ. And if I'm faithful to Christ, it doesn't matter what he does. I'm just being obedient to who he is and to what he's called me to. And I think we must get to the place in life where we're able to say, when people ask us who we are, whether we say it out loud or to ourselves, I'm a servant of Christ. And everything I do flows from being a servant of Christ. Jesus commended this woman for a second reason too. It was because she dared to perform for him an act of extraordinary devotion, well beyond conventional standards of faithfulness. And again, this was extravagant. And let me be clear about that. Um, I think that Christians are, are called to be responsible stewards of everything, of their time, their talents, and their life. We're not to be irresponsible. But there's also time we certainly are to be extravagant um, when God moves in our life. I don't think we're supposed to be stingy people, and I don't even think we're supposed to be mostly moderate people. I think we're supposed to be extravagant and in what our love and our grace and maybe you know our gifts, our talents, and our service. Um, consider the example of so many, not only in the scripture, but outside of the scripture that have just been extravagant in their devotion and their expression of their devotion to God. Sarah gave up comfort and stability of life to, in earth to follow a God who wouldn't even define where he was taking her. David gave up his dignity to dance before the ark. Peter and Andrew gave up their livelihood to become fishers of men. Albert Schweitzer gave up his power and privilege to become a missionary in Africa. John Wesley gave up his wealth to be a minister. Jimmy Carter gave up that presidential pose and insulation and, you know, to go work in Habitat for Humanity and build houses with people who couldn't afford houses. Mother Teresa gave up her position and quiet privilege in society to go take care 
of the poorest of the poor. Now, we may not all be called to do those things, but I meet with people on a regular basis who have dedicated their business to God, um, who have put their lives, have centered their lives upon Christ and dedicated everything else they do based on that. And so whatever they're doing, they're saying Christ is the center and I'm a marketplace minister going out and sharing what God has given me to others. They're extravagant many times in their faith and in their expression of their faith even to the point where some of the people around them, their employees, they don't get it, but they're appreciating it. I don't know why they're doing this, but I sure do like it. Um, so when Jesus pictures the lives of kingdom people, he pictures a shepherd who does the wildly rash act of leaving 99 to pursue the one. A father who extravagantly forgives and celebrates a recovered son. A Samaritan who risks his safety, soils his clothes, and expends his money and time to provide care for someone who was his natural enemy. A woman who anoints Jesus for burial with expensive perfume. All of them criticized for what they did. But he did it anyway. So anyone who reads the Bible closely or who realizes how extravagantly much God has given and done for him or her probably is going to stray out on the edge of extravagant occasionally with their love and what that looks like for others. In Luke's Gospel, Mary is also depicted as a good listener who loved nothing more than sit at Jesus' feet and drink in his teachings. And so maybe she understood more about the direction of Christ's ministry in a way that others didn't. So Jesus goes on um, in verse 12 and says, She poured this perfume on my body and did it to prepare me for burial. He is saying to them that her anointing him was his prospect of his coming death. Because... If you were a criminal and you died, your body would not be anointed. This is a pre-anointing of his burial. Um, so she takes the most expensive thing she has and she anoints her Savior. Tasker said this, Matthew makes it clear that she had an, an intuitive appreciation of the significance of Christ's death, which the disciples had yet to grasp. She knows that he is ready and willing to die at the supreme act of love for his friends, and she rightly reckoned herself and her family to be his friends. Jesus would die his, for his friends, and she goes, and I'm his friend. That's just a beautiful picture of what it really means to be a friend of Jesus. And so she pours out the perfume, um, as though, as though she's anointed as, as a king. See, we have a picture here of Jesus, not only prepared for burial and the prospect of his death, but we see a picture of true worship, giving the best we have because of his love for us. Giving the best he ha we have 
because of his love for us. That's worship. We sometimes think, okay, the music is worship, and then people will leave and say, I like the worship, I didn't like the worship. And it's all based on the music. And that's not worship. That can help us focus on our worship. Um, but worship is giving the best we have because of his love for us. And so hopefully, when you walk into church on Sunday, your heart preparation is, do I recognize how much God loves me? And all I want to do is just experience that and give him my best because of his love. See, the, Mary was merely responding to truth that no one else around at the table wanted to hear. And that truth was that the cross was coming. And perhaps she understood that the hope of the world is not ultimately in social reform, as important that is on a secondary level, but in spiritual transformation through the power of God's love and forgiveness received by those who understand what Christ did on the cross and are able to share that with others. And I am pretty convinced that Mary was not an intellectual giant. She wasn't an Old Testament scholar or a moral saint. But what she was was something altogether unusual in her time and in ours. A Christ-centered, self-sacrificing, discerning servant. Those kind of people are needed today. Apparently there weren't not too many of those kind of people around in Jesus' day, which may account for Jesus' final words in these passages. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What will be told in memory of us? Will it be our devotion, our love, our commitment to Christ, or will it be something else? Father, I just praise you and thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to worship you, to experience the fullness of your love and your grace. We thank you for your word, Lord. And we thank you for this amazing story that is tucked between deception, anger, evil, of betrayal, of abandonment. But right in the middle of all of that is the story of one person who shows what it means to truly worship you and to do that unashamedly. Father, I just praise you and thank you for your word. And I ask that you continue to minister to each and every one of us as we go forth to minister to others. We ask these things, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people said,